So enough of me telling you all about me. I want to welcome <laughs> all the way from the UK to the rest of the world, Mr. Terry Farley and Pete Heller. Thank you, fellas, for coming on. As we always know. Thank Hello. you. Is everyone okay? Everyone relaxed because everybody's coming in and the, and the, and the they're coming in droves and sharing the show, thankfully. So, as everybody knows, I'll put the question out first and I'll let either one of you start. Okay? So you're both young kids. How does music find the both of you? Whoever wants to take it first, by all means. Uh, um, well, Terry, you um, okay? Um, well, music was just part of the background of my life, really, because I was yeah, I'm the youngest of a quite a big family, uh, six kids in my family, so I'm the youngest. I was born in the middle of the '60s. I grew up with just music constantly on in the background, just you know, the usual stuff, all the chart stuff, and Beatles, Rolling Stones, and then by the time the '70s were were, were underway I was like listening to you know my sister was mad into Led Zeppelin and and the rest of it David Bowie so um yeah I just was constantly listening to those sounds and processing them and my dad was a big jazz fan big band and and um boogie woogie all that kind of stuff so yeah so that was really my my thing and um as I grew up in in the 80s uh, we were just flooded and overwhelmed by the music and that was around the time because it was such a musical culture um britain you know top of the pops every week all the chart stuff listening to radio one you couldn't really get away with it get away from it rather so um i was always listening and always being inspired by music mr terry 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 yeah, you're pretty much same. I mean, I, you know, my mum, my mum used to buy records, um, Motown records. Tamla Motown. When I when I was a little kid, Tamla Motown was the pop music. It was everyone listened to Tamla Motown. Um, and um, as a little a little kid, I must be really. She used to sort of like play the records upstairs in her bed. Teach me dances. You know, teach me how to dance. Um, and she used to always say, "Don't tell your, don't tell your dad," because, you know, sort of like little boys being taught how to dance was a little bit effeminate, I guess. So I was learning all these little moves, kind of odd moves. Um, and then it was just kind of what you did, really. You know, you you had growing up where the the, the area I grew up in. You had reggae, you had soul, and that was it. You know, people weren't into anything else. And um, buying records was was a thing that I did from, you know, I, I remember the first record that I ever bought. My mum gave me some money and she said, oh, do you want to buy it? You know, and I, so we went to Shepherd's Bush Market and I bought a record called Bonnie and Clyde by Georgie Fane. Um, do you know that record? No, I'm not sure. Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde, it was like number one and it was the song, it was the story about 
Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, it had sound effects in it where they got shot and they all got killed. It had the car screeching and, you know, and the police stopping them. Um, and Georgie Fame was a really, really English um, jazz musician. Um, very, you know, used to, when, when the American acts would come to England, like that, he would, he would always be the guy on the organ backing them. Um, and, and that was kind of like my entry and, you know, and it was, it was just exciting, but I actually, I, I liked going into record shops. I, it, it, you know, I'd look at people in the record shop, you know, older boys or, or, or men, and you kind of see these different characters and the, the, the culture of a record shop I found really interesting, um, especially reggae culture where, you know, no one spoke in the shop, no one let anyone else know what they were buying. You know, their little pile of records and they would just nod when he played a record. And at the end of the, an hour, they would just tally it up. Um, and I just, I, I like that culture. I really like, you know, to this day, although I don't buy vinyl anymore, you know, I, I, I really do a whole culture around it. Ah, okay. So we're going to say now, because I do remember the movie Bonnie and Clyde, but I don't remember the song for whatever reason. But I do. I, I'm so. It was number one in England. It was a number one record. When, when, when we finish here, we've been just bought Bonnie and Clyde. It's a, it's a great record. It's, I mean, it's a novelty record, novelty gangster record. It's, 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 it's a great record. Okay, so up until you guys meet, I'm assuming because I've always read over the years you were big into Jamaican reggae. You know that you were into, you love reggae music. So, what was the premise of going on in, in London? What was the sound in the 70s? Or, you know, as you guys were growing up, what was, you got to paint a picture a little bit for everybody. What was happening before this house music thing happened, before you guys got together? Probably too young in the 70s to, to, to go clubbing. Um, I mean, you know, the, the places that we went to were playing pretty much the same music as what, you know, Larry Levan was playing at the Paradise Garage, um, bar a few of the really uh, overtly disco records, you know, and in England, um, the kind of what you would call the underground tended to like a lot of the jazz stuff as well. You know, uh, New York City, Miroslav, Vitruss and Jaws, stuff like that. Um, Lello Schifrin, uh, Life on Mars, Dexter Wansel, that, yep. That kind of that kind of jazz disco was was huge in London and and in other parts of the country. Um, so that's what kind of hooked me. And I was buying them records. And then one day uh, we we used to go to a club called Skindles, um, and it was a DJ there called Alan Southern, who now lives in America. Uh, and he was a brilliant, brilliant, played brilliant music. And he was, an, he was a five, six, seven years older than us. And he was one of the tough guys at Chelsea. So everyone looked up to him, you know, all the kids looked up to him, the dancers and the, and the tougher kids. And, and um, we just kind of got, got really into it like that. And, and around 1981, me and my friend Paul McKee, decided we were going to do a Skindles revival. Now, this club had only been shut two, three years. So, like, the idea of doing a revival night, 
where, but where he would play, we'd get Alan and he would play, you know, Francie McGean, Delirium. He would play Linda Clifford, Runaway Love. Um, and we thought we'd have about 100 people come, our friends, and we sold it out. I mean, we, we never promoted before. We had like 500 people in there. And I remember going home and throwing the money, cool cash, throwing the money up on my bed, on my mattress, and screaming. And I, and I, I, I bought an airline ticket to, to America with the money. You did? Uh, there was, there was a, a budget airline called Fred, by Freddie Laker, this Australian airline. And they would do it, they started flights for hundreds. It's a British airline. No, no Freddie Laker. He was, he was Australian, but he was living in this country and he is a British airline. Lake Railways. They all, they all fucked him off in the end, didn't they? They all got together and, and, and uh, did a deal on him. But I, I remember we come to, I, me, and my, me and my wife, we come to New York um, on the money that I had kind of got through DJing and promoting for the first time. And it kind of like, oh, this is good. I need to do this more often. And... Um, yeah, so that was kind of it for me. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. So you, did you come into New York and go like to, like everybody else did, run the Studio 54, go to the Paradise Garage? Did you go to any of the clubs, anything? I tell you what, our, our, we didn't, we didn't, in 1979, 1980, you know, I was a teenager, we didn't know about the Paradise Garage. You know, there was no magazines that wrote about that. There was no internet. There was no radio shows that, you know, had Larry LeVan playing. We just didn't know. And, and you know, later on in the 80s, you'd get tapes. You know, people would buy tapes of Tony Humphrey's show and tapes of, of Larry LeVan. But that, that come much later. You know, when, I, when we went to New York, um, it was about the same time as that film come out with Charles Bronson. What was that film? You know, where he was, where he was going killing muggers in the Central Park. You know that Charles Bronson film? Yes, I do, but I can't think of the name of it. He was like a vigilante, but he was deliberately getting him, putting himself. So like, saying, you can't go to Central Park, you can't go here, you can't go there. The same, so we was in New York three nights, um, I didn't want to go Studio 54 because I knew it'd be full of wankers and it'd be <laughs> something club, which we had in England, and I didn't like anyway. Uh, I didn't know about Paradise Garage, um, but I wouldn't have got in anyway. You know, you know, the, my friend who I did this party with, I'm telling you, Paul McKee, he he come to New York. He's you know the famous picture of the ramp where everyone queuing up at the Paradise yes. Garage. Yeah, he, he took that picture, right? Now he he got to the front door and he was working off for London Records, and I think they had either they had had a record out that was really big at the Paradise Garage, and maybe one of their acts had played there, and I think they got him on the guest list, um, but they they wouldn't let him in. You know, he wasn't a member, and he was with his girlfriend, so he wasn't gay. He was white. Um, and um, he, he had to, I think he had to sort of pull some big nail from where he was working to, to get in. But he took that picture on the ramp and he took a couple of other little snaps inside. But um, no, we, 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 we didn't do anything like that. Um, 
it, it, to be honest with you, it was overwhelming as it was. You know, people seeing people. New York in in eighty one was Manhattan was quite a, a shock. I bet um, coming from know, England, people, yeah, I bet it was a shock. Yeah, people. You well, know, well, here's no a question. One, I, here's the question first. You know that movie everybody sees. All you guys love that movie from '79, New York, New York Warriors, The Warriors, whatever that movie is. Because every English guy asks me that question. Was it what the Warriors were? Did it look like it? Did it smell like it? Was it exactly what you guys seen on that movie? Because all of you had this idea. New York was like this. Was it exactly that way when you came? No. <laughs> it, wasn't. it wasn't as gangs wandering around, but it was pretty, it was pretty rough. So I actually went there in 1981 because um, we also got a flight to New York in 1981 on later airways. But we were staying um, with my family, my dad, they did a, a house swap with, um, so you could do that. You could like, get these directories of people who the house on the summer holiday. And we swapped with his family in, um, upstate New York, well, out just outside the city, a place called Larchmont. And um, and my sister at the time, she was a nurse in New Rochelle, so we came out to see her, really. But there for two weeks, and it was just after the royal wedding when Princess Di got married to Charles. And so there was, it was just all over the press. And um, but we, we went into Manhattan a few times, but it was, the, the trains were all covered in graffiti. You went into Times Square at night, it was just hookers everywhere. So it was a bit, it was a bit more like Midnight Cowboy than the Warriors, but um, yeah, it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. I remember going down downtown as well, like down, you know, that where they all, they all, just the warehouses, there was no, nothing there at all. Just, uh, yeah, there was no sort of shops and restaurants and all that stuff, but it was, it was great. It was, you know, it was the real it's thing, a, the real deal. You knew, you knew there was a buzz about the place. There was a real energy and you could feel it. The, the same trip that we made, we also, we had, a, few, a, a short stay in New York, and then we went to uh, Miami. And um, I was determined to go to a concert in Miami. So um, we, we looked at the newspaper, and there was a Solar Records um, uh, showcase. So we went to see The Whispers, Shalimar, and, oh, God, an, another group who I can't, Lakeside? Possibly fantastic voyage. That'd be that'd be right. Yep. Lakeside, and and of course, you know. So we it was like, where is this on? So we went to the, this place where to buy the tickets. And I remember we went in there, and uh, the woman was going, uh, "It's a, it's soul and funk." Yes, yes, that's what we like. Where are you from? England, right? Are you sure? Yes, yes, we like this. And uh, and it was quite it was quite strange because it, uh, you know I, I we used to, we see we used to go to a lot of concerts in England and you would go and see you know James Brown Funkadelic uh, Sylvester and uh, the audiences would be very mixed very uh, racially mixed and we went in this and we were in an arena I guess like a basketball arena. And um, we were sitting there, and I think we were probably the only two white couples there. And everyone else was dressed up. This was the other thing, you know, just jeans and T-shirts. Everyone was in suits. And all the ladies had big hairs, and, you know, and it was I'd like, what the fuck, you know? Um, 
But that was cool. That was cool. We, you know, that was. I'm glad we did that. But we never went clubbing, no. All right, but look, you know what? That's why the woman kept asking me, are you sure you want to go? Because all of you don't realize in those days how segregated America was. It was incredible, yeah. especially down yeah, south. Woof. Florida, yeah. yeah. They're looking at you guys going, are you sure you like that music? Are you positive you like that music? You're like, yeah, we know what that music is. Because you didn't deal with that in England. That's why Jimi Hendrix went over there. He didn't have none of the problems he had here. Things were much more relaxed in your country to go and be, you know, of another color and be comfortable and relaxed to do what you do and be and enjoy playing at a spot and not have a problem with a police officer, including in the early 80s. It was still going on. I mean, Pete, Pete will, Pete will uh, back me up on this. The time uh, was when we come to Chicago with Lolita. You know, we had a couple of situations in restaurants that, you know, were, were you know, were quite offensive, really. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. Um, Hang on. Wait, 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 wait. We have to explain what happened there because you said Lolita. I, I mentioned it before. So they, before we get to Lolita part, I want to know how you guys got together. That's a very important part to the story because I haven't heard. I know both of you are coming to New York separately. When does Folly meet Hella? And then we'll get to that. There's quite a lot of time after, after that when I was, what, 15, I think, when, when I was in uh, New York the first time. So after that, I was, at un, you know, I went to university. I, my, my sort of journey towards where Terry was was through hip hop and early, it was called electro, really. That was the thing that got me. I think actually, um, you know, there was a lot of music and when I was going to a lot, a lot of gigs, one kind of really formative experience was going to see the Clash play at Brixton and they had um, I think it was Fab Five Freddy um, and he was the sort of support act and um, one of his DJs was just playing beforehand and and this is kind of what I guess we're talking again not, not much later than this probably 84 something like that and um, 83 so he was his DJ was just well it may even be himself just playing hip hop or electro, as we, or electro funk, it was called at the time. And it was just, I'd never really, I'd heard bits and pieces, but it, it was just like, I remember just sitting there and listening to this sound and thinking, this is it, this is this is what I want. And, um, and that was kind of like my journey into in the more sort of underground black music was, was kind of then, really. That's how I suddenly sort of transformed uh, my, my, what I wanted to do. And, um, so I went off to university <coughs> shortly afterwards and um, got, I was running clubs, um, small clubs, some parties up there in Manchester before the whole Acid House thing. And um, then Acid House, that kind of movement that, that started in uh, 1988, which is the year I left Manchester and came down to London. And it was the, the clubs in London where we ended up meeting up. Oh, really? This is, this is like 87, 88 already now you guys met, right? Around that time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, I think probably 1988, you know, I met Pete at Shum. Pete, Pete, my first memory is Pete actually playing a guitar over, over Danny, Danny Ramplin's records. Um, 
But I also do what I've, I kind of always, I was thinking about this the other day. Fondly, Peter had a kind of intro when he, whenever he played him, he would, he would warm up. He would play um, the a cappella of First Choice, Love and Happiness, with the little road solo in. Love and Happiness. And then he would sort of like, you know, start playing records. And he always did play a lot of, this is, now this is, you know, on a house scene. He'd play a lot of records that I used to really like from the disco era. He would play Whistle Bump, Diodato, um, T-Connection, Midnight. Um, so that's, I think that's the first time we kind of would have like sort of been, been in each other's company. Yeah, so that would that, well probably we would have been in other's company actually at the fitness centre. So Shum was a was a club run by Danny Rampling and his wife Jenny, and they um, and it was uh, in a very small venue. It was basically a, a gym. That's why it's called the fitness centre in the in the week. And then on on um, Saturdays they sort of push all the gym equipment to one side, hung up a big banner, and stuck. Um, Norman Jay's brother had a sound system. That was actually a reggae system, and they put it in temporarily. And then put a smoke machine and a strobe in the corner, and that was basically the club. And they had a little bar with some stairs downstairs, and it sort of become a bit of a legend, a legend amongst clubs because it was quite difficult to get into eventually, and it didn't hold many people, but it was very intense. And so we probably would have been in that room together, but not aware of each other at the time. Um, and 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 Shim eventually moved out of that venue to to a bigger place. So it went to a place um, at the time called. Um, what was the name of the place at the time? It's Busby's, which became a story too. And Busby's, um, that's where I got to know Danny sort of quite well in this sort of downtime. But after the fitness center closed down, there was sort of a hiatus. There was a few months where nothing was going on. We were just traveling around London to all the other clubs. But um, Danny wrote and opened it there and he asked me to be the, the warm up DJ, which was a bit of a, a shock at the time because I was pretty well unknown. I didn't, you know, and I was quite young, didn't have a huge record collection, but we kind of bonded. So it was a, it was, it was, a, it was that was kind of my break. And um, I would play the warm up and downstairs in, uh, just before Danny came on. And then Terry would be upstairs with Andy Weatherall playing a kind of real mixture of all sorts of sort of Balearic, which as it was known at the time. And then, Sort of reggae and dub and all sorts of other weird things so funk and soul so yeah I was I was really there just to warm up for Danny so that's why I would start off quite slow and just generally build build the vibe as um, as people came into the club um, but yeah how long did that last for you being the resident warm-up guy for, for Terry uh for Terry for, for Rampling for Danny for Danny yeah well for Busby's I think it was about a year Year, year was it open there, or a year and a half something yeah. like that eventually we moved to another venue they, they stopped doing that it was a Wednesday night and then and they closed and they moved to another venue called the park which is over in uh, in West London and that was um yeah and then then it was just guests well guest DJs that shared with with um Terry which actually where I played guitar was actually there so I don't think oh, yeah. it's sort of mi slightly mixed the times up but but yeah there was the part where I played it's very hard to kind of, you know, actually do a timeline because, it, you know, weeks went into weeks and years went into I think the, the guitar thing was definitely, I think what happened is we kind of connected through going, you know, meeting up 
and, and at various different nights and and going to Ibiza. I remember you that that opening night at Amnesia. We sort of I remember chatting to you then, and then um, and then the park thing. And then I was playing guitar, and that was when um, we started. You started. Um, you started up the label, and that's when you needed someone who could play or do stuff um, for the first Boca Juniors record. And that's kind of how we started. I mean, Pete. Pete told me uh, uh, he had a drum machine. You had a, didn't you? You had a. a little I, I, I had a drum machine, and I had. They weren't mine though. They were basically I borrowed a bunch of equipment from Richard Norris, who, who's sort of in the grid. He's quite well known artist. Yes, I remember. And he, wow. he, yeah, I remember the grid. Wow. And he, I was friendly with him at the time and, and I'd hung out with him in the studio and he had a bunch he had a sampler like an his old Casio F set one, the little twelve bit sampler keyboard and um and a couple of other bits and bobs and I was like, Oh, can I borrow them? And um, so I'd learned to program a bit on on this little Alesis pro like hardware programmer. And that, and and I'd had it sort of in my room in Camden Town in my flat, and I'd been sort of playing old go-go records and stuff. So, and that sort of became the sort of backbone of our first track that we worked on together, which is this track that we did with um, Andy Weatherall. It was Bocca Juniors, and uh, it was called Rays, and it was sort of like my sort of sample beats and my rather failed attempt at being a guitarist. Um, that yeah, that was basically the the the, the start of that. Uh, me and Terry really working together because after that, Terry had started working with a band called The Farm, and he wanted a bit of support really because he felt I think you felt a bit lacking in confidence. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I was prepared to twiddle knobs. I just thought, oh, I don't. I'll get in there. I'll 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 press a few buttons, and. <laughs> And um, and we were very lucky because the first record we got to work on was this record by a band called The Farm, who Terry was friends with from Liverpool. And um, they did a record called All Together Now, which became a big hit. And we were on producer points for that. And uh, we co-produced that with Suggs from Madness. And he sort of, that was the first record they recorded on the album. And I think Suggs realised quite quickly that we were absolutely of no use whatsoever in the studio. And got <laughs> and got rid of us quite quick, but not before we'd got our producer point on all together now. And um, and that. Yeah. So, wait, so wait, wait. So would you say that was like the beginnings of how we're going to figure out how to do this? Like we got to step up our game. We got to learn something. What what was the? the well, it, was like it was a, it was more than that. It was it was actually it was a here's a check for fifteen grand, which is what came up came my way quite soon after that, because it was a big hit. And so I was like, well, I've got some money. So let's buy, a, I bought a computer, I bought a load of, of gear. And I was like, I'll learn how to use it now. So that really became the basis of, of all the, um, of all the records we make. Cause we had, we had some equipment so we could, I could figure out how to use it at home. And then it was just, whenever we went into the studio, we didn't have to rely on, on, um, you know, the, the time you, you, you get, if you did a remix, you got sent into a studio with an engineer and usually a, a sort of programmer. And you'd have to try and explain to them what you meant. But whereas now we could we could do it ourselves, which is which is what you know. That's why things were. I mean, it was difficult as well in those days. You know, computers and, and equipment was quite expensive, so it wasn't as simple as just having your laptop like it is now. You know, if you wanted that gear, if you wanted all that equipment, you had to you had to, you had to spend a fair bit of money. So if you didn't have a record deal, you needed access to a bit of cash. Um, and we were quite young. I was quite young. Terry was, you know didn't you know it wasn't like we didn't get a big advance or anything we weren't a band 
So, and we were being asked to do lots of remixes. So it was just sort of, we were learning on the job really. So that one record basically launched it for you guys and that got everyone to know who you were instantly, right? Well, it gave us the, it gave us the tools to start um, working it out to do it properly. Interesting. See, I had no idea. See, here's where I'm stumped though. I didn't even know you played guitar, bro. Well, oh, I, I didn't really. I sort of, I could play a few riffs. <laughs> I was like a guitar player? Like, I didn't know that. I'm like, this is really cool. Now, here's the thing. Terry, were you, you know, because you're coming up in the 80s, you're DJing. Were you doing this full time or were you doing something else as well before the record label started? No, I, I worked, I was um, a gas fitter. You really? Know, I, yeah, I was a gas fitter. Um, and I was changing, you know, like the gas meter you have in a house. Um, I was working with uh, Sue's um, cousin who had this uh, contract with the gas board for changing and putting in new meters. Uh, quite frankly, it was the right doddle, um, it, you know, and, uh, and I liked it. I mean, it was really easy, you know, it was, it was, it was uh, the, the quintessential kind of working class life in the 80s where you were dodging everything. You were dodging everything, you know. People would start at work at eight, they would go to the calf. You'd be in the calf for an hour. Um, then you'd then you'd have this little scam where you go back to the depot because you didn't have the right part. Then you'd go and have, um, do a couple of jobs. You'd be in the pub at lunchtime. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't drink. I used to play Space Invaders, but the older guys, you know, they were drinking pints and pints at lunchtime. Um, and then after that, you would do a couple of jobs and, and you'd be home at three o'clock. Um, it was quite, it, you know, it was quite easy, but, but here's the thing. Um, Paul, I'd been working um, with a crew called the Raid Club, the Raid. And this was like 86, 87. And the three DJs were me, I was the warm-up, Paul Oakenfold and Pete Tong. And the Raid was run by Gary Hazeman, who... God bless his soul. You know, he made Acid, that record, D-Mob. Uh, and another guy called Paul Starsky. And it was brilliant. You know, it was really good. The music was go-go, early house. Uh, a lot of kind of New York, what you know, big New York D-Train type records. Um, uh, the crowd was great, very trendy, really cool, loads of girls. Uh, we did warehouse parties. We did the Wag Club. We did an all-nighter at the Hundred Club. Um, in a tent, a circus tent in Hyde Park, as you remember. Uh, Batsy Park. Batsy Park. Park. That's right. I was yeah. there that night. That was New Year's Eve. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You you played, didn't you? No, I was. I hadn't. I, I was before my DJ day. That was. Uh, uh, Norman yeah. J played. That's Norman J played. That's it. Norman J played. Fat Tony played, and you had That's to go. Wow. Basically, Hazeman had gone in because they you know they had, the, they had the circus up all week for two weeks with all the elephants and everything and he had gone in there and you know what time do you close new year's eve right can we do can we do a party here afterwards and i think bung someone some money um and um and then we had to climb we had to go in and we had to climb up the pole where you know the trapeze artists would go and they'd put the decks up the top 
and he was climbing up this ladder and it was really scary. Um, but it was very posh around there. And um, I think it only, we only lasted till maybe just after midnight when the police raided it and shut it down. I mean, you know, very apt, it was called the raid because they, they were kind of illegal parties. Uh, so that never lasted very long. But my point is, uh, Paul Oakenfold then asked me to be resident at uh, a new club that they were starting called Spectrum at Heaven on a Monday. Um, and they, they, I'll give you 50 quid. And I was like, oh, that's not bad. You know, I'm probably only getting 100 quid a week, you know, doing what I was doing. Um, and then that went crazy. And then on the Thursday, he had been, he, him and Nancy Noyes, Paul Oakenfold and Nancy Noyes, had been the residents at this club called Future, which was a really, really cool kind of balearic party for all the kids who had been living in Ibiza and who had nowhere to go, you know, once they're back from London, back into London. And he said, would you be resident? I'll give you a hundred pound a week. And I was like, my goodness, you know, a hundred pound a week. Um, which was what I was earning, seven days, five days a week on a normal job. Um, and I tried to do both, but it was just too much. You know, I was getting indoors at four and I was up at six to work. Oh God, so you only had two hours to pull it together and start yeah. again. And I mean, while work, you know, as I explained to you what work was, it was still, I was still working with gas. Yeah. So there was a danger to, to the, the people I was going into their houses, you know, I, I was putting people's lives in danger. Um, so uh, I, I had a chat with my, my girlfriend and she said, give it a year, pack your job in, give it a year and see how the DJing goes. Did you really dream that you were gonna become a DJ and do this or just was like, um, I'm throwing in the pool. I'm just going to jump in the pool and try it. I don't know if that's going to go. There, 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 wasn't, there wasn't a career in DJing before Acid House. You know, even, 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 even the, I think the people who are DJs, their, their um, goal in life was to get a job in a dance department at a major record label. Or on the radio. That that's was, right. Radio that's, presenters. Yeah, that's what they wanted, you know, and a lot of people did. Oki, Oki was doing Def Jam. Uh, Johnny Walker was at Radio, was it London? Nancy had a job. Uh, that was the goal, not to be a DJ. The, the, the DJing was fun, but it was a, a way of getting a job in the industry. Uh, you know, nowadays it's the biggest job in the industry. Yeah, but back then, Ian Levine started in the North, like, for example, and look where he went to, and all those names from the 80s, 70s, and 80s. They weren't thinking about DJing as, we're going to take this international, we're going to be big superstars. They were thinking about, I want to make a record, and I want to produce, and how do I get in? I want to do something else. According to some of them, some of them very rich that we know, <laughs> that, that we're, we should say we're born with some golden spoons. They weren't worried about money. They were able to play around and then go into it, where some of us were grafters, as you would call it in England, coming from yeah. nothing, you know, from the soil and working our way up to the, to the ranks. So officially, I got where Pete meets you and all that. 
when does this production team officialize and the junior boys zone blows up and because i know when you guys came to new york that i remember sound factory you're hanging out we knew you were in town but what happened pre to that when did the office open up when did this all become legitimized hey well, I mean, I already sort of mentioned Boca Juniors, and that was the first record on a new label that um, that somehow one of uh, the boys own. I think it uh, itself. Terry can tell you a bit more about the background, but they were, you know, you, you're four friends from West, from West London-ish, and and a deal somehow was hatched with the Pete Tong, who was at the time at FFRR in London, to for for boys own like for to to make records, and we were sort of. I was drafted in to help, as I've already mentioned, and, and we spent a week at a very expensive record label in act, a record studio in Acton called called Eden, and must have cost a fortune. But we basically produced a record um, called Rays, and that was really the start. And that, that sort of kept going for a little while, but it never really evolved into anything particularly successful. And I think we got frustrated with the sort of the major label pace of things because it was quite slow and you had to you had to take your place in the queue and, and and eventually we were like well let's do something you know a bit more underground that's a bit faster and and then an independently was born out of that which was junior boys own and um and there was an and there was a need to make records and so so you know we were basically people who got went into studios for a couple of days and knocked out records as well as the remixes that started at that case the first, the first kind of house record we made was uh beating the bones um which was fire island wasn't it fire island beating your bones yeah that's right yeah uh so i think we kind of just you know the one of the one of the few things i'm good at and there is only a few is making up names and um kind of throwing ideas in so we kind of cut we, we agreed on fire island we thought that was a great name um and um beating your bones there was it was i was saying to you about the tony humphreys tapes that especially in labrick grove people in labrick grove used to be crazy about tony humphreys there, there was a there was a new jersey appreciation society which was like um all these guys in 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 Labrick Grove, you know, um, and they were the New Jersey appreciation side. Anyway, and one of these tapes was a tone on Tony Humphreys on Kiss FM was a jingle, and he just went and the jingle went Tony Humphreys putting the beat in your bones, and it was like Pete, we got to make a record called Beat in the Bones. Um, so Pete knew rapper. No, I don't know where he came from, that guy. But he turned out to be the the nephew of the of the lead singer of Killing Joke, who were quite a big band around at the time. Um, but he was, yeah, he was a kind of rapper. I don't know where he came from, though. I don't think I knew him. Or maybe I did. I can't remember. JC Double O One. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Was it? Was he not? Was he not from the gay scene? No, no. He was. He, like I said, he was. He was just. He was. Um, he was related to. Um, what's his name? The the lead singer from Killing Joke. I can't remember his name anyway. But um, jazz, I think was wasn't it? Um, anyway, yeah. He came down the studio. We knocked up a little beat. Got him rapping. Sampled a load of stuff he'd done. And um, I plinked away at the keyboards. And and a, and a track was done. And a dub. We always did a dub and a track. And that was the first record on.